it great to know that we serve an indescribable God, but a God who is able to change our lives. Is this on? Can y'all hear me? All right. I'll try to talk loud enough. That shouldn't be a problem. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 96 of this morning. And this morning we're going to talk about worship. Since the beginning of the year, we've been in a series called A Fresh Beginning. And I started by talking about that, how we need to be faithful in our walk with Christ. That if we want to be fought, that if we want to follow Jesus, we have to be faithful to Jesus. Then we talked about that, how we need to see Jesus on the pages of Scripture. Then we talked about how our perspective matters when it comes to our adversary and our ally in adversity. And for the past three weeks, I've been talking about the church. And in talking about the church, we have answered several questions in regards to the church. What is the church? Who builds the church? Why does the church exist? Why membership matters? And what are the responsibilities of membership? And so this morning, I'm going to talk about worship. Because I think worship is the key to having an effective church and having an effective Christian life. I believe that worship is the catalyst for everything else the church does. When we do ministry or missions or evangelism or discipleship or fellowship or prayer, it all comes out of our worship. And our worship will determine how we live our lives. The word worship comes from an old English word meaning worth-ship. It means to give worth or value to someone or something. It means to declare the greatness of someone or something. And we are all created to worship. We're all going to worship something. We are going to ascribe greatness to someone or greatness to something. Some people worship people. Some people worship their spouse. Some people worship their kids, where their life revolves around their kids. Some people worship athletes or musicians, or celebrities, or social media influences, or even religious leaders. Some people worship their jobs or worship money, and some people choose to worship God. Even though we can choose to worship other things, God did not create us to worship other things. He created us to worship Him and Him alone. And when we worship God, what we are doing is we are declaring the worth of God and the value of God and the greatness of God. And knowing who God is and what He has done, why would you want to worship anyone else or anything else? He is the only one who is worthy of our worship and our praise. And He alone deserves all of our worship, not just some of our worship. And whether we worship Him or not, here's the neat thing about God. Whether we worship Him or not, He's still worthy because His worthiness and His value and His greatness does not depend on our worship. It depends on His character. And however our worship of God or lack of worship of God, it does reveal what we think about God. So how you worship God or your lack of worship of God it reveals what you think about God. And we don't worship God as we want Him to be. 
We worship the God that he truly is as revealed through his written word, the Bible, and his living word, Jesus Christ. When we truly worship God, we will reflect on his value. We'll reflect on his beauty. We'll reflect on his character. And every time I speak about worship, I share this definition of worship because when I heard it, it's never left me. There are a lot of things I forget. But this is one thing I don't forget. This definition that I heard, it says worship is God's revelation of himself to us and our response to it. I heard that from Chuck Wooten, who was the worship leader at a youth fuge, fuge camp in Ridgecrest, North Carolina in the summer of 2014. That's one of the best definitions of worship I have ever heard. Because the only reasonable response to who God is and what He has done for us is to give Him the honor and the praise and the worth that He alone is due. I'm sure most of you have heard, but it's incredible what is happening at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, just a few miles up the road. What started this past Wednesday morning as a regular chapel service has it, uh, turned into a time of continuous worship it started with about 30 students and it's still going on students and people are coming from all over to worship God revival is breaking out on the campus of Asbury and it started with 30 students who could not stop worshiping God wouldn't it be great if revival broke out in our lives because we could not stop worshiping God you see once we start worshiping God we should not stop worshiping God but unfortunately, there's a great misunderstanding about worship. Many people think worship is about them. In his book, Experience God and Worship, George Barna says that the main reason millions of people in America go to church every week is not to worship God, but is instead to have a pleasing experience. He goes on to say that most Americans go to church to satisfy or please themselves, not to honor or please God. So most of those surveyed said they go to church to worship for themselves. They go to church for their benefit, for their pleasure, and not for God. This is a wrong view of worship. As worship does not begin with us. Worship is not about us. Worship has never been about us and will never be about us. Worship begins with God and is always about God. We are not to be the focus of worship. He is. And our worship, what we worship, how we worship, should matter to us because it matters to God. And as we look at Psalm 96 this morning and go through this message, I want to share with you four reasons our worship matters. And I want you to think about two questions. I want you to think about, number one, who are you worshiping? And number two is God pleased with your worship. Let's read Psalm 96. It says, Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among all peoples. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fill it, fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them exult. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. First thing I want to share this morning is worship matters. Because our worship of God should cause us to sing praises to God. Our worship of God should cause us to sing praises to God. We just read that in verses 1 and 2. And what I just read, there are four imperatives. He says sing three times and he says praise once. An easy deduction is that God is commanding us to sing praises to him. This is emphatic. This is a command. It is not optional to sing. And notice the psalmist does not give any stipulations on who can sing and who can't. He doesn't say you have to be a good singer to sing. Praise the Lord. He simply says sing to the Lord and praise his name. And then he tells them what to sing. He says sing a new song. He says sing about something new that God has done. What is this new thing? Well, this is before Christ, so it couldn't be the coming of Christ yet. To understand what this new thing is, you have to go to 1 Chronicles 16, 23 to 33. I don't have time to turn there and read that passage, but you almost see the exact words in 1 Chronicles 16, 23 to 33 that you see right here in Psalm 96. So what was happening in 1 Chronicles that was this new thing? God had commanded the Israelites to move the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, symbolizing God's return to Jerusalem. And from this time forward, God was to be honored and worshipped there. So what is the new song for us that God wants us to sing? Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says this. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The new song for us is about the atonement of Christ. The new song for us is the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross and the atonement of, cro of the cross and what Jesus did for us on the cross. It should excite us. We should be willing to sing a new song for, to God because if it wasn't for the cross, we would still be dead in our sins. If it wasn't for the cross, we'd be lost without hope. If it wasn't for the cross, we'd be condemned for all of eternity. And as a follower of Christ, we should have no problem getting excited and singing about God's grace and His love and His mercy and His salvation and His resurrection and the victory that we have in Jesus. And if singing about Jesus and what He has done doesn't cause you to sing, I don't know what will. 
You see, there's nothing wrong with getting excited about other things in life. I was excited when I graduated from college and seminary, finally. I was excited when Joni said she would marry me. I was excited at the birth of our boys. I was excited to go on vacation and things like that. We get excited to go to a concert or we get excited about watching a ball game or going to a ball game. And as we know, there's a big game tonight. There's a lot of excitement over the Super Bowl. And although it's not wrong to get excited about other things, it's wrong to get excited about everything else but Jesus. It's wrong to get excited about everything else but Jesus. Nothing should excite us like Christ. And whether you like it or not, heaven is going to be full of singing. Heaven is going to be full of worship, so why not do it now? Why wait to heaven to sing to God? Why not sing for Him now? And when we gather with other believers for worship, God expects us to engage in worship. God expects us to participate in our worship. And we need to understand that when we come to worship, we are not the audience. God is the audience. God is an audience of one, and we are the participants who are lifting our voices in praise to Him. And we are to show God that He is worthy of our worship by opening our mouths and singing. And it doesn't matter whether or not what other people say or think about your singing. It doesn't matter if someone comes up to you and says, you can't sing. You know what? That hasn't stopped me. And it shouldn't stop you either. You know, I, I love my dad. I miss him greatly. And he could do a lot of things. But one thing he could do is he could not sing. Sorry, Dad, but he couldn't sing. But growing up in church, I stood by him. And he would sing as loud as he could, whether or not he knew the song or not. He was louder than anybody else in the sanctuary. So if you don't like my singing, blame my dad, not me. But here's the thing. He sang to the Lord. He wasn't singing for anybody else. He was singing to the Lord because he loved God. You know, when we sing songs that I knew my dad knew, I can hear my dad's voice. And I can hear him sing those songs my dad didn't care about what other people thought he cared about worshiping God you know there's a story about a, a church that had a man in the choir who couldn't sing and others had tried their hardest to find other places of ministry in the church but he insisted he was going to be in the choir no one was going to tell him what to do the man leading the choir became so desperate, he went to the pastor and said, Pastor, you have to do something with Brother John. If you can't persuade him to leave the choir, then I quit, and most of the choir is going to quit too. Please help us. So the pastor went to, to the man. He suggested he leave the choir for the sake of the church and for the sake of the choir. The man responded, Why should I leave? The pastor told him several people are complaining and told me you can't sing. 
The man responded, that's nothing. 50 people have told me you can't preach and you're still here. <laughs> Don't never say another word about my singing. So. But think about that. He was singing for the Lord. And he was right. He was using, he was making a joyful noise, as it says in Psalm 98.4 and Psalm 101. It says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. And that includes everyone. Don't hold back from singing praises to God. On account of what others might say or think. Because you're not singing for them. You are singing for Him and to Him. You're not here to please man. You're here to please God. God is pleased with your singing even if you can't sing. And why should we sing? Look at Psalm 95. Verse 1, it says He's the rock of our salvation. Verse 3 says He's a great God and a great King. Verses 4 and 5 talk about how He's the great Creator. Verse 6 says He's the Maker. Verse 7 says He's the Shepherd. We should worship God and sing to God because God is our everything. There is nothing that we need God to be that He is not. And because of who God is, because of what He's done, we should worship Him by singing praises to Him. Second thing I want to point out is our worship matters because our worship of God should cause us to be a witness for God. Our worship for God should cause us to be a witness for God. Verses, verse 2, the end through verse 6. He said, proclaim his salvation day to day. Declare, declare his glory among the nations and his wonderful works among the peoples. We have two more imperatives, two more commands. Proclaim his salvation day to day. Declare his glory and his wonderful works. And to proclaim the salvation of God and to declare His glory is to be a witness for God. It's to tell others about what God has done for you. And notice He said that we are to do it day by day. We are to witness daily for the Lord. Why are we to witness daily for the Lord? Because we are to worship daily before the Lord. And we are to constantly tell others about Jesus. And as we go throughout our day, we talk about a lot of things. But I wonder how many of us talk about Jesus daily. You see, the reason we're to talk about Jesus daily is so others can know and worship the God that we know. John Piper said missions exist because worship does not. Think about that statement. Missions exist because worship does not. And you know what? The statement is so true. There is no need to witness to others. There's no need to tell others about God if they are already worshiping God. But because many people are worshiping other things besides God, we have a responsibility and we have a privilege to tell them about Him. And according to verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 96, God is the only God who is great. God is the only God who's to be praised. God is the only God who's to be feared. He says in verse 4, he says, The Lord is great, is highly to be praised. He's feared above all gods. 
For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You see, if anyone worships anything besides God, God says that's an idol. The Hebrew word for idol, it means no thing. It has the idea of a non-entity. And in verse 5, the psalmist uses a play on words. You don't catch this in the English, but if you read the Hebrew, there is a play on words. So stay with me for just a few seconds while I give you a Hebrew lesson. Elohim is the Hebrew word for gods. The Hebrew word for idols is Elohim. So when the psalmist writes, the gods of the people are idols in Hebrew, it reads, Elohim of the Gentiles are Elohim. He's mocking the gods of the people. He's saying the gods that they worship are nothing. And we see this play out in two classic passages in Isaiah that we're going to look at briefly in just a minute, in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 41. And that's why many scholars think that Psalm 96 was written around the time of Isaiah. Isaiah 44. I'm just going to read a few verses from this passage. Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 11. Isaiah writes this, This is what the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, says, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who like me can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me. <coughs> Since I have established <coughs> an ancient people, let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. All who made idols are nothing, and what they treasure does not profit. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Who makes her God or cast a metal image for no profit? Look, all its worshipers will be put to shame, and the craftsmen are humans. They will all assemble and stand. They will all be startled and be put to shame. Verses 15 to 18. It serves as fuel for man. He takes some of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worship it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire. He roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worship. He prays to it. Save me for you are my god. Such people do not, under, can, do not comprehend and cannot understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see in their minds, so they cannot understand. Isaiah mocks the idols of pagans by describing how a carpenter makes an idol with a piece of wood and then uses the other piece to make a fire and cook with it and then falls down and worships the manufactured idol and says, Save God makes it very clear that he is the only God. He says in this passage, there is no one like him, that he is the only God that there is. And then you turn to Isaiah 41, similar, similar language, verses 21 to 24. Isaiah says this, God speaking, Submit your case, says the Lord. Present your argument, says Jacob's king. Let them come and tell us what will happen. Tell us the past events so we may reflect on it and know the outcome. Or tell us the future. Tell us the coming events, then we will know that you are God's. 
indeed do something good or bad, then we will be in awe and perceive. Look, you are nothing. Your work is worthless. Anyone who chooses you is detestable. It's very clear by reading these, these two passages that only the God of the Bible is the only one that we should worship. God said is that if those gods can save you, cry out to them and see what happens. Ask them gods to predict the future. Ask them gods to lead you and see what happens. And I want you to notice who Isaiah was talking to. He wasn't talking to pagan nations in these two passages. He was talking to the Israelites. The people that God had chosen to be his people. And they said to God, you will you be my God. And yet now they're worshiping idols. They can do nothing for them. Have done nothing for them and will do nothing for them. I wonder how many of us who claim to worship God are actually abandoning God in our worship and worshiping other things. I wonder to how many of us would God say those same things? Isaiah 43, 11, God said, I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Paul reiterated this thought. He said, an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. There is no God but one and that is the God of the Bible. And this, this, this idea that is presented in Isaiah and is, and is quoted by Paul, it refutes all other religions. In our culture of political correctness, this is not popular saying there is one God, there is only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. But I am not concerned about being politically correct. I am concerned about being theologically correct. There is only one God, and that's the God of the Scripture. It's not the God you make up. It's not the God that you think is God. It's the God as defined and described in His Word. God is the only God. There is no God besides Him. He has no rival. He has no equal. And the only way to God is through Jesus. It may not be popular, but it's correct. Because it's not me saying it, but it's God's Word that says it from Genesis to Revelation. And because God is our Creator and our Redeemer, and because strength and glory and splendor and majesty belong to Him and Him alone, it is not only wrong to worship other gods, it is sin. It is sin to worship anything but God. Go back to the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5. You will have no other gods for me. And then you are not to make any idols. In Matthew 22, 37. Jesus reiterated this in a different way. He said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And if we truly love the Lord our God with all that we have and all that we are, we will be a witness for God, and we will desire for others to cast down their idols and come to Him and worship Him. We need to understand that our worship of God can be a great way to witness to others about God.
because if you show that God makes a difference in your life if people know you worship God and see the life that you live they will say how can I have what you want or what you have they will want what you have and it all starts with our worship of God our worship of God should cause us to be a witness for third thing I want to point out is our worship of God matters because it causes us to give glory to God. How do we give glory to God? Well, first, we need to define the word glory. Glory comes from the Hebrew word kabod. It refers to the impressiveness or the weightiness of God, and it infers the presence of God. And the glory and the presence of God is seen in the works of His hand, as it says in Psalm 19.1. And in his marvelous deeds, as we just read in Psalm 96, verse 3, he said, Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among the people. The Holman Bible Dictionary says to give glory means to praise, to recognize the importance of another, the weight the other carries in the community. So to give glory to God is to recognize the importance of God and to praise him for who he is and we are not just to recognize the importance of God or the presence of God on Sundays but every day that we live this tells me that worship is a lifestyle meaning that we are to live our lives for God's glory and our mission and our desire should be to turn our place in life wherever we are whether it's school whether it's work whether it's home whether it's the gym, into a place of worship, understanding that everything we do except sin can be done as an act of worship to God and a reflection of Christ when we do it for Him. Every place we are is to be a place of worship. Whatever we do except sin is to be an act of worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And notice in verses 7 and 8, he uses another imperative. He says, ascribe. He used it three times. Verses 1 and 2, he said, sing three times. So he shows that this is very important to ascribe glory to God. What does ascribe mean? It basically means to give God glory. And singing has an important place in worship in the church. As the songs that we sing, it should encourage us to live for Jesus. However, it is not enough to sing about God. We have to live for God. God never intended for worship to be confined to the walls of the church. He intended for worship to be lived out in our lives. And if the words we sing are validated by the life we live, then our worship means absolutely nothing to God. If the words that you sing in here on Sunday morning mean nothing to you and don't have any impact on your life and you go out from church and you live the same life that you lived when you came in, the worship you did on Sunday meant nothing to God. You know, we sing in our songs, I surrender all. But in our life, we really sing, I surrender some. You know, we sing, he's the king of kings or the king of my heart. But yet he's not the one, one on the throne of our heart. We sing wherever you lead me and whatever it costs me. 
except we say God you may lead me there but I'm not going there God I know you want me to to give this up to follow you but I'm not going to do that why sing the songs if you're not going to live them out in your life you know what Jesus or God told this to the Israelites several times in scripture if you turn to Isaiah 1 Turn to Isaiah 1 in verses 10 through 15. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my court. Stop bringing useless offerings. I despise your incense and your new moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with the festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you, ref <coughs> even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And then he says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Then if you go to Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 24, he says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will be the day of the Lord for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom with any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your worship or your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Then Micah 6, verses 6 and 7, he says, what they, The Israelites asked God, What shall I bring before you when I come to bow down before you? Should I come with burnt offerings, with year old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for my own sin? Then one of the great verses of the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8, Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God in those passages we see that God was sick and tired of the worship of the Israelites they were offering all these things to God but they were not offering themselves they were simply going through the motions and God was saying if this is the way you're going to worship me don't worship me at all I wonder how many of us Day, God would say to you I'm fed up with your worship because you come to worship on Sunday and act like everything's good but then the way that you live out during the week doesn't look like you worship me at all you see the true test of worship is not what we say it's not what we give but it's how we live the true test of worship is not about ritual it's about righteousness it's about doing what Micah said in verse 6, 8, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And sometimes we can't even do the ritual right. 
There was a pastor by the name of, of Jim Dunn, and Joni, this is not your brother whose name is Jim Dunn, so I'm not referring to him, just so you know. He was serving as the pastor of the First Baptist Church, and his wife Gladys was very friendly, and she welcomed people. And one particular Sunday, the sermon seemed to go on forever. I don't want anybody to say a word. But many in the congregation fell asleep. And after the service, she was being sociable, and she walked up to a man who had been sleeping, and in an attempt to revive him from his sleep, she extended her hand in greeting and said, Hello, I'm Gladys Dunn, to which the gentleman replied, You're not the only one. You see, worshiping God is about sacrifice. Verse 8, it says, Bring him an offering every time we enter his courts in Psalm 96. What offering is it referring to? It's referring to a thank offering. You see, the greatest offering, the greatest sacrifice we can give to God is ourselves. Romans 12:1, Paul says that uh, he says that we are to be a living sacrifice. He says, then he goes on to say, that is our reasonable act of worship. You see, worship is not getting something from God. Worship is giving ourselves to God. It's surrendering all that we have and all that we are to Him. There's a professor at Southwestern Seminary where I went by the name of Professor Bruce Leafblad. And he defined worship as centering our mind's attention and our heart's affection on the Lord. We are to center our attention, our affection on God every day that we live, not just on Sundays. We are to constantly think about Him, and we are to constantly love Him and live for Him. Singing about God is great, but it's not enough. Giving God everything, including our lives, is our only reasonable response to the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. And in Scripture, worship is always a verb. It's never a noun. Worship is not what you attend. Worship is what you do. And what you worship and how you worship will dictate how you live your life. Whatever you pursue in life is what you worship. And that's what will consume your life. And whatever you worship is what you become. Jack Hayford, who just recently passed away, who's an author and pastor, said this about worship. He said, worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshipped. Worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshipped. So he's saying if you worship God, if you pursue God and His holiness, you will become like God. You will become holy and you will live your life for His glory. The great composer Johann Sebastian Bach said this. He said, all music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Whether this is not remembered there, there is no real music but only a devilish hubbub. And he handed all of his compositions with the initials JJ, which means Jesus, Jesus Juva, which means Jesus help me. And he ended them with SDG, meaning Sola de Gratia which means to God alone be the glory. You know, hearing this reminded me of the song that we sing sometimes, Glory to God Forever. 
the bridge in the song says glory to God glory to God glory to God forever and then it says take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory take my life and let it be yours you know God has given each one of us one life one opportunity to worship him and while we are on this earth we should live our lives for his glory and his glory alone by living a life of total obedience and surrender to him don't waste the life of worship God has given you make the most of it by pursuing him and living for him and as a result you will become like him and your life will bring glory to him last thing I want to say is our worship of God should cause us to look forward to the return of God our worship of God should cause us to look forward to the return of God he, he mentioned that in verses 10 through 13 of Psalm 96 and this particular passage is a fundamental and powerful message for us as God's people to proclaim to the world because whether other recognize his reign or not the Lord has reigned the Lord is reigning and the Lord will forever reign. And one day his reign will be openly and obviously imposed upon the whole world. The scripture says, Paul said in Philippians, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the message the psalmist is proclaiming in Psalm 96 and the message he wants us to proclaim is that the universal reign of God will result in righteous judgment upon the earth and God's coming judgment upon the earth it should bring us joy why should it bring us joy because all that is wrong with the world will be made right evil will be punished righteousness will be rewarded and we need to look forward with anticipation to that day when Jesus returns to rule the world justly and righteously there will not be justice in this world. There will not be peace in this world until the righteous judge and the prince of peace, Jesus Christ, returns to this world and rules and reigns. And in that day, we will worship him with all the saints singing, as it says in Revelation 19, 6 and 7. Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. You see, worship is our response to what we value most. We are all worshipers. Worship is what we do, and we're going to worship something. Something is going to grab our attention. Something is going to grab our affection. Something is going to drive and direct our lives. And nothing and no one else should drive our lives and grab our minds' attention and our hearts' affection except God. And God gives us the opportunity. He gives us the privilege to demonstrate His work by inviting us to bring Him glory to Him with all that we are and in all that we do. But the choice is ours. It's up to us to make the worship of God the driving force and, and the very fabric of our everyday lives and the life of the church. And everything we do in our lives and everything we do as the church, it should be the result of our worship for God. And when this happens,
when the worship of God is the fabric of our lives, is the fabric of the church. When this happens, the church will be filled with worshipers on Sunday who worship God and pursued God Monday through Saturday. So I challenge you to make worship what you do, not just what you attend. To understand that worship is more than a song, that it is a lifestyle. And when you make worship what you do, when you make worship your life, you will have the mindset that you come to church not to worship, but you come to church already worshiping. Be the worshiper that God wants you to be. And as God gave His all for you, give your all to Him and for Him. And remember your worship of God, how you sing to God, how you live for God, how you share God, matters to God. And it demonstrates His worth and His value. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you tonight or this morning and we just thank you for this message, God. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that in your word you, sure, you clearly show us who we should worship and how we should worship. God, you clearly show us that we should worship you and you alone. And Father, I ask that you would forgive us for making worship what it is not. Father, worship is not about us. Father, worship is about you. Father, worship is more than what we sing. Worship is about how we live. And Father, I pray that we would understand that our worship needs to matter to us because it matters to you. And we were created to worship you and you alone. And Father, I pray that we would desire for our worship for our lives to bring you glory to bring you honor and Father I pray that we would not be ashamed of you we would not be ashamed of worshiping you whether it's in church or outside the walls of the church and God I pray that through our worship that people would come to know you and Father I thank you that one day when you, Jesus returns all we're going to do is worship you because, Father, you alone are worthy of our worship and our praise. Father, just thank you for this time we've had in your word. And, Father, if we'd made worship something that it's not, if we'd made worship about us and not you, Father, if all we are giving you is a song and nothing else, Father, I pray that we would change that this morning and make a commitment for our worship to be a lifestyle. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And God, I pray that we would get excited about Jesus and what he's done for us and is doing for us more than anything else in our lives. Father, we ask all these things in your name.